together and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, it will be useful and especially helpful today as we study the first 19 verses together that you have your Bible open in front of you. And so if you don't have one today, I invite you to grab the chairback Bible that should be nearby you and you'll find this morning's text on page 16. We come today in our series of studies, ongoing studies in the book of Genesis to what might be one of the most moving and majestic passages, not just in all of Genesis, but all of the Bible. Those of you that know it well, you know it as somewhat of a harrowing text. For some of you, it may be altogether horrifying in certain ways, but it certainly is a text I hope by the end we'll be able to see why it is that we can hope in God with such faith and trust as Abraham because of what the text tells us. So we want to look at the first 19 verses of Genesis 22. Let me read them for us, then pray that God would bless our study, and we'll begin together. So listen now as our God of faithfulness speaks to us once again through his word. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And Abraham said, Here I am. God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young man, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And Abraham said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on top of the altar, on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham said, Here I am. The angel said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. 
And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now, Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's word? Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to the majestic truth of Jesus Christ, who is the sacrificial lamb slain for sinners. That what often might appear ordinary to us, we pray that you would open our eyes to behold with unique love and fervor and affection this morning. Not only open our eyes, we pray, but open our hearts as well, that we might repent where we must, we might believe in every place where we must, that we'd hear with earnestness and eagerness, that I would preach with boldness and clarity, as you say a must, that Christ would be exalted and proclaimed and encountered in our midst. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It was in and around the turn of 1843 that my historical hero, Robert Murray McShane, sat down behind a desk in his house and he began to write something of a a personal memoir, certainly a a personal panting after godliness. He ended up titling it Personal Reformation. And in just a few pages, he's 29 years old at this time, soon to turn 30, just a few pages he expressed his longing to grow in holiness and even put down this pretty precise plan of how he was going to go into his fourth decade of life and pursue godliness, the holiness without which no one can see the Lord. And somewhere along the way, on the second page, he began to think about these doctrines and truths of the Christian life that he wanted to meditate on more. And he said this of one, often the doctrine of Christ for me appears common, well known, having nothing new in it. And I am tempted to pass it by and go to some scripture that is more taking. This is the devil again. A red-hot lie. Christ for us is ever new. Christ for us is ever glorious. And I wonder if that's even true in your own life. If you take these central gospel, good news, truths of the Christian faith. Christ for us, which we would often speak of in theological terms as substitutionary atonement. And maybe you become so familiar with them that it is altogether common, altogether ordinary, well-known. Maybe you need something that's more debatable, more interesting to discuss. But McShane was right in that there's always newness found in this truth. There's always more glory, unsearchable riches to be discovered in this truth that Christ has been sacrificed For us, and we come to what is perhaps the greatest picture in all the Old Testament of a substitutionary sacrifice here in Genesis 22, as God tells Abraham to take his one and only son and kill him. Now, if you want to understand how that must have interrupted Abraham's life, you need to understand where we left off last week at the end of chapter 21. Because at the end of chapter 21, it seemed that every threat in Abraham's life had finally just gone by the wayside, finally been removed. Because after 25 years from first hearing the promise of a child would be born to Sarah, a child would be given to Abraham, 25 years later, the child of promise, Isaac, finally arrives. And so it seems like all threats have been removed. The internal threat of a lack of a child, 
has been answered. Isaac has finally arrived. Not just that, the internal threat of rivalry between Ishmael, the child of flesh, and Isaac, the child of promise. That's been removed as Ishmael's been removed, sent out to the wilderness. Not just that, even the external threats of no safe land in which to dwell, no safe land in which to pitch the tents. That seems to be taken care of at the end of chapter 21 because Abraham and Abimelech have agreed on this treaty, this covenant where Abraham's going to stay in and around Beersheba. At the end of chapter 21, it's all peace, it's all joy, it's all happiness in Abraham's life. But what we see, turning to chapter 22, as it often is, isn't it, in the Christian life? What was a season of peace, what was a season of joy, is just simply the calm before the storm. Because the storm arrives in a unique way in chapter 22. And the, the key word in this passage, maybe you notice as I read it, is the word provide. It shows up three times. This is a text that's simply here to tell us this central truth that the Lord will provide. Four words that could possibly change the entire outcome, not just of your life, but of today and this week. The Lord will provide. When trouble comes and it seems to have no explanation, when the hardship arrives and there seems to be no hope of it ending, when the suffering comes and there's no ordinary explanation or way out of it. For Christians, the song in the night is what? The Lord will provide. Uh, so we've got three scenes to look at here in chapter 22. First of which we're going to see God presents a test, then God provides a substitute, and finally God promises a blessing. We'll spend most of our time in that center section of God's provision of a substitute. But notice first, God presents a test. Look again at verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And Abraham responded, here I am. Now, kids, I don't know about you. Students, I don't know about you, but I tend to think that tests for ordinary students is not something you look forward to. You're probably not looking forward to returning from spring break to a potential pop quiz, to an unexpected exam. But what you need to see here about the Christian life, life under Yahweh is ordinarily God tests His people. He does it often to examine their faith, to show their faith, to grow their faith, testing out what's really in the depth of an individual's heart. God comes along after however many years we don't really know of Isaac's birth and tests Abraham. I suppose that some of you might be in here this morning and you're in the midst of maybe a season of suffering, a moment of affliction. And has it ever crossed your mind that this just might be a test from God? This might be meant to tease out. The depth of your faith to reassure you, reassure you in the love of God. But I'm sure we can all agree, whatever the test that might confront us today is, or this week, whatever it might be, it certainly pales in comparison to the test Abraham gets. For look again at verse 2. God's, God says to Abraham, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. Now, if you have eyes to see and you've been following along with us in Genesis over these last few months, you know that the language of verse 2 sounds eerily familiar to something we've heard before. Actually, all the way back in chapter 12, God's first call to Abraham. 
Because he essentially says to Abraham in chapter 12 to sacrifice your past. Abraham, sacrifice your past, your family, your friends, your land, where you've called home. Sacrifice your past and go to a place that I will show you. What's God doing here in verse 2? Sacrifice your future, your son Isaac, and go to a place that I will show you. And it's as though God wants to to drive the anguish into Abraham's heart ever further, like arrows by saying, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and kill him. Certainly that must have jarred Abraham. And if it doesn't jar you enough, kids, if you don't understand the terror of the moment, what we see later on in the Old Testament is burnt offerings went like this. You killed the animal, you cut it up, And you burned it as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. That's what God is telling Abraham to do with his only son. You wonder if he could sleep that night, right? We don't get anything in the text that tells us that Abraham responded vocally to God. That he questioned the test. That he wondered aloud about the test. We simply see his immediate obedience as we move into the next section in God providing a substitute. Look at verse 3 and 4. Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. So you want to notice two things about Abraham's obedience in this moment. Now, students, especially whenever you see this phrase, rose up early in the morning, it shows up more in Genesis than you would think. It's this signal of obedience. First thing, he got going. He doesn't talk back to God. He doesn't question God. He doesn't complain or grumble about this test. Immediately after he went to sleep, he got up and got going. And kids, what you want to recognize is so often the glory of obedience is found in its speed. How long does it take you to actually obey? What pleases God is immediate obedience that you see right here in Abraham, but not just that. Obedience that goes all the way through, that perseveres, right? Because it takes him three days to get to the land of Moriah. And I think that's especially helpful for us to notice, lest we think that Abraham's subsequent willingness to offer Isaac to the Lord is just this kind of momentary madness of emotion. For three days, step after step after step, Knowing he's getting closer and closer and closer to the killing of his son. And what does Abraham keep doing? He keeps going until he gets all the way there. And eventually, of course, they get all the way there. And notice not just Abraham's obedience, but his faithfulness in verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. So if you look down again at verse 5, there are, there are three wills, if you will, in that passage. That's emphasizing Abraham's faith. We will go. We will worship. And don't miss the last one. We will return. Not just me. We will return. So maybe you want to ask the question, then, what's Abraham thinking in this moment? Is he going to duke God when it gets to building the altar and somehow... Psych him out about how it is to offer the son named Isaac. Trick God along the way. Or is there something else going on in Abraham's life? 
Well, certainly the latter, isn't it? Because the book of Hebrews tells us what Abraham was thinking in this moment. In chapter 11, verse 17 and 19 of Hebrews, it speaks of Abraham's faith when God tested Abraham. And it says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And here's what Abraham's thinking in this moment, why he can say, we will come back to you. Abraham considered that God was even able to raise Isaac from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Because what does Abraham know in this moment? He knows, because he's heard it for years, and he's getting ready to hear it again at the end of the chapter, but he keeps hearing over and over and over from Yahweh, you will have children as numerous as the sands on the seashore, the stars in the sky, the dust of the earth. You will be a great nation, and it's through Isaac that that great nation will come. What else does he know? Well, certainly years before when Isaac was born, that God already has brought back life from the dead. Because the book of Genesis has told us Sarah's womb was dead, barren, yet it brought life, a son named Isaac. And so in ways that he is logically reasoning in his own mind of faith, he's saying, if I kill this son of mine, my only son, God is going to have to bring him back from the dead. That is why we are going to come back. What's true faith in this moment? It's hope against all hope, isn't it? It's trust in a supernatural God who can do things that a natural world finds impossible. It's belief that, yes, nothing is impossible with God when all possibilities and solutions and remedies seem to have evacuated the scene. I wonder if you have this kind of trust, this kind of faith and belief, or maybe this kind of knowledge of God's Word to you in His gracious covenant promises. I think it was on June 5th, yes, June 5th, 1944, General Eisenhower, you know, he's in charge of all the Allied forces in Europe, and you could find him on the evening of June 5th. He was on a runway in England as the Allied forces are jumping in, gathering in, getting into these planes that would take them over the English Channel to drop them off over Normandy, France, as they were storming Hitler's fortress Europe. And after the last soldier got in the last plane and the last plane took off and made its way to France, Eisenhower got back in his car. And he looked over in the back seat where he was sitting to his aide and he said, you know, it's a, it's a hard thing to look a soldier in the eye when you know you're sending him probably to his death. It's a much harder thing, isn't it, to look your child in the eye, knowing that you are taking him to his death. Look at verse 6. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went, both of them, together. Now, it's hard to know exactly how much time has passed between the end of Genesis 21 and the beginning of Genesis 22. But as best we can tell for a variety of different reasons in the story of Genesis, probably close to about 20 years has passed by. So what you have here is Isaac, probably about 20 years old. You have Abraham, probably about 120 years old. We know from the story of Genesis already that Abraham has spent so much of his life, especially at the high points and the climactic moments of following Yahweh, he builds these altars. 
He sacrifices to Yahweh on these altars. He calls upon the name of Yahweh at these altars. So it's probably right for us to assume that Isaac countless times has carried wood on his back to go build an altar where they would worship Yahweh. Countless times see his father take up the fire and take up the knife. But something was different about those times, wasn't it? What else would have been walking alongside them? Some sort of an animal. Which is why Isaac knows something's wrong about what's going on here. Do you see what he says that he speaks in the text for the first time in verse 7? At the end, behold, the fire and the wood. But Father, where is the lamb for a burnt offering? So in this moment, as they're traveling up the mountain, they're making their ascent. You have the son who's unsuspecting, who's innocent. He's trusting in his earthly father. And then you have the father, surely in the anguish of his faith-filled heart, trusting in his heavenly father. For look again at verse 8. God will provide, Abraham said, for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so you have to assume then, don't you, even the text doesn't make it completely clear that on the way up the mountain, however long however long it was to take them to climb up this trail, to climb up the way to where the, the place of the sacrifice was supposed to be, that Abraham's eye was always looking. As we used to say in soccer, his head was on the swivel. Where's the lamb? Ten yards go by, still no lamb. Hundred yards go by, still no lamb. He's still looking. Fifty yards, we've reached a place. There is no lamb. Still looking and hoping. Building the wood. Where's the lamb? Binding his son. Where's the lamb? Setting him on the wood. Where's the lamb? Raising his arm and his Old muscles twitching as they're ready to plunge the knife down. Hoping, knowing, trusting, God is going to provide a lamb. And so surely any original reader and hearer of this book, if you're unaccustomed to even the narrative because it's brilliant in how it increases this tension, it just zooms ever more in on the scene, slowing it down to each little detail, to each little action. Original readers and hearers get to the moment, don't they? A verse 10 where it says, Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son, and everything within an ordinary person says, don't do it. Don't do it. Stop. But, of course, heaven beats us to the punch, doesn't it? Look at verse 11 and 12. The angel of the Lord called out to Abraham from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And again, Abraham said, here I am. The angel said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now, kids, do you think God needed to really find out if Abraham feared God? Do you think God was wondering up in heaven, does he really trust in me? You certainly want to shake your head and say, no. God knew Abraham's fear and faith. So the test isn't for God, is it? It's for Abraham himself to discover 
the depth of his fear and faith. Because what is the test at its core? Do you love your only son more than you love me? I'm going to show you the depth of how much you trust in me. I'm going to show you the depth of why you can rely upon me. Give me your son, your only son, whom you love. And stunningly, Abraham does it. If God came to you in a night dream tonight and said, give me that screen, give me those sports, give me that success, I'm sure you'd stay awake all night long, let alone give me your only child. But the lamb is finally found, isn't it? He finally looks and behold, notice verse 13. He lifted up his eyes. Behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram, offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. You know, you just want a movie picture moment of this. What goes across Abraham's faith or face in that moment? Is it just delight and happiness? Finally the lamb with something on his face of, I wasn't really sure if it was going to show up. Or is his face so great he's just like, oh yeah, there it is. I knew it was coming, just didn't know where to look. Whatever it is, it's the first picture, isn't it, of a substitutionary sacrifice, a lamb offered in the place of another. Because look again, it was, verse 13 says at the end, instead of his son. A Passover lamb in Exodus, slaughtered instead of the people. Passover lamb pointing forward to what would happen at the Day of Atonement. A spotless, precious lamb slaughtered in the place of the people. Remember what John the Baptist said when Jesus showed up on the scene? Look, behold, the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. Humanity has always been looking for a sacrificial lamb. And this one pointed to the true Passover substitutionary sacrificial lamb to come whose name is Jesus Christ. So significant, of course, was God's provision. Notice what Abraham names the place in verse 14. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. All of our children, most of you know this, I'm sure, are named after some sort of historical figure of the Christian faith. Our oldest Hudson Mark is named after the great 19th century missionary Hudson Taylor who took the gospel, one of the first ones to really make incredible inroads with the gospel in China. And Hudson Taylor was incredibly famous in the English-speaking world in the 19th century, not just for his success and his strategy of reaching the Chinese people with the gospel, uh, but also how he went about it. He was uh, part of a circle of people at the time. I actually think I mentioned one of them last week, George Mueller, who never asked for money, but always just prayed in faith for God to provide whatever they needed. And so when the China Inland Mission was established and Hudson Taylor's home was built, he hung a plaque on his wall, simply said two words, Jehovah Jireh which is the name of God mentioned in verse 14 that the ESV translates as the Lord will provide. That's who God is in his character, in his being. The Lord will provide. And perhaps you know how some Christians, millions of Christians even, professing believers around the world today takes this name of God and this truth of God and causes it to be little more than a promise about material prosperity. What does he provide? Well, materials and money. 
stuff and success. When the truth of the matter isn't it so much greater. Do you need forgiveness? The Lord will provide. Do you need freedom from sin? The Lord will provide. Do you need life from death? The Lord will provide. Do you need a substitute? Because you know nothing you could do, nothing you could say, nothing you could think would earn God's favor. The Lord will provide. He provides a substitute. Notice at the end of the chapter, he promises a blessing. You see in verse 16, the angel calls out a second time from heaven. And he speaks to Abraham, rewarding him for his obedience. Renewing God's promises to him. Notice verse 16 through 18. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed. My voice. He's rewarding Abraham with a strengthening, a solidifying of these promises that we've heard already throughout Abraham's life in Genesis. Innumerable offspring, mighty nation to bless all the peoples of the earth. But there is one little wrinkle in this passage that we actually haven't heard before, even though it's been implied in previous promises. You look again at the end of verse 17. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. So often the promise of offspring to Abraham has been about protection and prosperity. Here it's also victory. Not even your enemies will be able to stand against you because you obeyed my voice. Do you see how God will provide for his people? Well, it was just over a week ago that Emily took our youngest children to the zoo. Boston, our two-year-old, is especially in an animal crazy phase, and I had plenty to do that day that required me not to be able to go to the zoo, and I needed to stay at work, and so as the kids were preparing to go that morning, and I left the house, you know, I called across the way as if it needed to be said, make sure to take some pictures, because I want to see Boston's face, largely. And it just reminded me, isn't it true that so often at significant events in the course of our life, we want pictures, to help us relearn, to help us relive the experience and the memory. I mean, just yesterday we had a wedding in here. And at one point the groom couldn't get down the aisle because the photographers were in the way. The video guy had like the camera right in front of his face as he's getting ready to take his bride. We need these pictures so often, don't we? We long for a visual of what it was like. This is a picture, isn't it, of unrivaled clarity unrivaled emotion of unrivaled beauty about a couple of things. And what I want to do as we begin to close is meditate just on two things that this picture is, that this passage is a unique picture of in 18 verses. The first of which is it's a picture of the Christian life. Remember, Abraham is a friend of God. Abraham is the man of faith. Abraham is a model in the faith. And notice how it goes with Abraham. We do not think that it went this way with Abraham, and it won't go this way with us. It's a life of reverence that leads to obedience. It's a life of trusting God amidst God's testings. It's a life of relying on God 
when there's no human explanation possible for any sort of provision, isn't it also an example, a picture, a portrayal of forsaking all to follow God? Doesn't Jesus require that of all his disciples? As he says, anyone who loves his father and mother more than me is not fit to follow me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me may not be one of my disciples. I wonder if you have this kind of faith and trust, what might be preventing you and your life from a wholehearted following after the Savior. But notice again, if our timing is right, he's about 120 years old in this moment. Some of you are in the last years and decades of your life. You dare not think that you can relax on past laurels and work for God. He may soon test you in the sorest way. He may soon test you with the greatest anguish. Because we're called to fight the good fight until the very end. It's a picture of the Christian life, but isn't it a picture of something else? A picture of Jesus Christ. You know, there's a story told of Martin Luther, the great reformer, the German Lutheran, who was reading this passage for family worship one night. And we got to the end of the passage. His wife, Katie, she had this uh, great personality and was learning the truth because it had been kept away from her for so many years. And she says, I don't believe that passage whatsoever. God would never do that to his son. And Martin looks across the way and says, but Katie, he did Look back at verse 14. There's this interesting language, Jehovah Jireh, that comes. And it is said, to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The language here in the Hebrew for provision is about seeing. A way you could translate verse 14 at the end is, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be clear. Do you know where this mountain was? Mount Moriah. Do you know it was later built on Mount Moriah? The temple. Do you know where Calvary was? Where Jesus died? In walking vicinity of this mountain. Isn't it true? The mount of Jesus Christ. It all becomes clear. Because who can hear the language of take your son, your only son, the son in whom you love and not think of. God so loved sinners like you and me that he gave his one and only son. You see... A ram trapped in thorns. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, slain for sinners like you and me, trapped in a crown of thorns. The chosen seed, Isaac, taking the wood to the place of the sacrifice. The ultimate chosen seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ, taking the wood, the cross on his back to the place of sacrifice. At this mountain, substitution was made. At that mountain, substitution was finally made. So it's why we can say not just that, the Lord will provide. We, on the other side of Calvary, get to say something else the Lord has provided. Because notice the difference. The angel calls out to Abraham from heaven and says, I know that you love me because you gave your one and only son. Turn it around this side of Calvary. God, we know you love us because you gave us your one and only son. The Lord will provide. The Lord has provided in Jesus Christ, the chosen offspring of Abraham. Let's pray together.
Father, we pray that you would help us to love Christ more than we do. To follow you with increased faith. To be strengthened according to your spirit in the midst of our sufferings and trials and testings. For we know that you provide for whatever we need. So we do ask that you would provide for us in Jesus Christ all that we need to glorify you, all that we need to follow you, all that we need to worship you in every place. Rejoicing evermore that a substitution has been provided and his name is Jesus Christ. Let us all know him, we pray in his name. Amen. Let us stand together as we want to respond to God's provision of a sacrificial lamb by singing the bulletin insert, Behold the Lamb.